This is Just Conversations with Kelly Brown Douglas, a series of interviews that explores the racialized inequities intrinsic to our nation and our collective responsibility to create a more just future. This conversation was recorded via Facebook Live Thursday, July 29th at 2.30 p.m. Please like, follow, and share the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Facebook page for future live streams. These videos are also found on the Episcopal Divinity School at Union YouTube page. On this episode of Just Conversations with Kelly Brown Douglas, she speaks with Dr. Sherry Moloch, a senior research fellow at the Steve Fund. They discussed how the Steve Fund collaborates with colleges and universities, nonprofits, researchers, mental health experts, families, and young people to promote programs and strategies that build understanding and assistance for the mental and emotional health of the nation's young people of color. Dr. Sherry Moloch, thank you for joining me in this conversation today. Thank you so much for having me. This is a joy and a pleasure. So I want to jump right into these very important issues concerning mental health, particularly as mental health has so much been in the news today, uh, these days, particularly in these last couple of days, and particularly as it surrounds uh, young people of color. But before digging into those important issues, which the Steve Fund addresses, I want to begin by asking you, how did you become involved with the Steve Fund and what is the work you do with them? So I, I always think I have a, I'm having a love affair with the Steve Fund. <laughs> so I um, was introduced to them by a really good friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Nell Prem, who's a psychiatrist, about almost two years ago. And I was very struck by their advocacy that specifically focuses on the mental well-being of young people of color, both in high school and in college. And there are so few organizations that do what they do. Um, they, they work and partner with communities, with colleges, with schools to really focus on the mental well-being. And, and it's interesting, a lot of times when you look at what's done in the Black community, there's always a focus on pathology. Yes. And so they focus on well-being, like what, not so much what the problem is, which is one part of the solution, because obviously you need to know what's going on, but then to focus on what are some solutions, and they're very solution-focused. And so they partner with young people, with schools, with administrators, with professors, with family members, to figure out what are the things that are going on with young people, and then what can we do, particularly given their context as people of color, what can we do to help to rectify that? Because really, Everyone deserves to have emotional well-being and no one should, by the conditions that they live in or the community that they're from or the color of their skin, have their well-being compromised because of that. Yeah, you know, I too, uh, uh, Sherry, <laughs> if I may, uh, have also been very taken by the Steve Fund and was introduced to them through an exercise program uh, that I'm a part of. And one of the things that I was impressed with is that Indeed, their focus on youth of color and their mental well-being, but that, that they are proactive right. uh, as well in promoting well-being and not waiting uh, when there has been some kind of, can we say, a catastrophe 
or emergency. One of the things they conducted research and uh, and one of the things that they've said is that despite in this time of COVID, the sort of universal nature of disruptions caused by the pandemic to everyone in general, that students of color and young people of color are especially bearing the weight of these challenges of the health pandemic most acutely. And in many respects, I think we've seen that over the last couple of days, perhaps, uh, in the news. Can you speak to that? Yeah, so I think when the pandemic first started, those of us who were in the mental health field with another capacity we were in, um, my first response was, "Uh uh-oh, because I knew this was going to impact the communities of color greater because there were already existing inequities in healthcare. So it's not surprising that if you're already operating in in an inequitable system of healthcare, and if you know that the burden of economic problems, financial problems, housing instability, food insecurity, already occur in these communities, then when you have a pandemic that impacts those same systems, it's not not rocket science to say, oh, you know what, we're going to be more negatively impacted by that. What the Steve Fund did, which I loved, and I worked with them closely on this, was they knew this and they started doing to get the data to support what we already knew was going to be true from the very beginning. And so I work with them. One of the things I do with them is I help them develop research portfolios. And so we started gathering data right away to be, to be able to demonstrate, because unfortunately you need data sometimes to demonstrate that the things that we know to be true are in fact true. And sometimes given the context in which we find ourselves living, not even that data, right, uh, convinces people. But even when it doesn't, that doesn't mean that uh, certain groups of people are still uh, facing a uh, negative impact. Uh, at a disproportionate level than others are. So here's the other thing that occurred has occurred during this time when everyone was facing this COVID pandemic. It also came together with Black Lives Matter protests, not to speak of the realities, right, of hate crimes against Asians, attacks on immigrants, attacks on DACA. And as the Steve Fund also recognized, further exacerbating an extremely difficult situation in terms of COVID. And so you had this escalation of mental and emotional stressors that were already burdening uh, young people of color. So I think of in so many ways, the what we even see today, this time of racial quote unquote reckoning becomes a trigger for the manifestation of racial trauma. Can you help us to understand what we mean by racial trauma and its impact on particularly our youth of color. So I I, I love the way you describe this because really what's impacting people of color is what's called a syndemic, where you have multiple pandemics Hmm. that occur simultaneously. So say that again, it's a what? Syndemic, S-Y-N-D-E-M-I-C, a syndemic. And so one of the things I like to point out, this will be um, to get to your question about racial injustice, Racial injustice is not new to the Black community. Right. What's new is the spotlighting of it. <laughs> and what we don't realize is that while it's important to spotlight and highlight what's going on so we can make changes, that very spotlighting is also traumatizing. That's exactly right. So to give you an example, I was watching on Facebook and someone put together a clip of the different Black men who have been murdered by the police. 
And by the time I got to the third person, I, I stopped and I said, you know what? I know what the person's trying to do here, but watching young men die in front of you is traumatizing. And the, because we have social media and we have 24-hour media um, platforms, think about the fact that we look at this over and over and over again. And so while unfortunately racial injustice and the denigration of Black bodies, which you speak so, of so well in your work, is not new, the 24-hour-7 access to it is. <laughs> and it's really important for us to also engage in self-care. So yes, we want to be aware of what's going on. But to watch that imagery over and over again is psychologically traumatizing and it's not healthy. So you have to take a break. I know there's a popular um, uh, series on, I think it's Netflix or primetime video. And everyone was, oh, have you watched it? And I remember I watched the first episode. I said, you know what? I need a break. (laughs) I can't really watch this right now. (laughs) So and then I remind those of us in the Christian community, even Jesus would do stuff and then go off by himself. So you need to break from it. You know, you can't just inundate yourself with that stuff over and over again. The other part that I think, I don't think people are really talking about this, that is traumatizing, is imagine you're a young person and the, the broader culture is saying, oh, wow, Black lives really matter. Oh, wow, let's go protest. What that says about what people think about your voice and you've been saying that all along, uh. and now we're just noticing it. So what's so it's not trauma may not be the right word, but it's sort of a negation. It's almost like people are saying, we think these things are real only when we notice. Yeah. And when you cry out, we don't really pay attention to that because that's you being you know dramatic, or we have this whole issue now about critical race theory. We don't really need to bring that stuff up. Uh, and we're and you know people of color going, but that's part of our experience. And you're so the very focus on it in some ways highlights the negation of it. Do you understand what I mean by that? Oh no, I, I that's so well said, and something that uh, we haven't thought about. And and but we know uh, as uh, black uh, black people as communities of color that unless they say a quote unquote. Then right. uh, it's not going to be heard or taken seriously, so that it continues to negate our very voices. And 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 even it's interesting to hear you speak to uh, uh, the fact that you know you couldn't continue watching those things. And what I recognized during this period uh, and was surprised by was that I thought, wow, I never thought that this would happen to me. But I found myself traumatized. And I stopped watching Black movies. I stopped watching things. I couldn't take one more piece of this in because this is everyday reality. Now, if indeed that is the impact that it has upon us and we're adults and we learn how to process these things and pull away, what about our young people? What should we be on the lookout for? I keep thinking we have a whole generation that is being coming into their voice during this time, coming into their sense of self during this time that is full of triggers, if you will. Uh, and so racialized kind of triggers. What, what should we be on the lookout for? What well, are we not seeing? I think one of the things that I'm particularly concerned about, and you know, this is my area of research, is the suicide. So suicide rates over the last 15 years have gone up precipitously, particularly for young Black men. And I think that 
one of the things that we have to deal with in the Black community is we have a belief that other groups of people complete suicide and we don't, and that's not true. And in some age groups, the um, rates for suicide deaths have actually uh, gone up and are above those for other groups right now. So that's one thing. Two is knowing the warning signs or what are the signs that we should look out for. And I know sometimes I talk to parents and they'll say, well, I'm not a doctor. I can't diagnose my child. And I'm like, you don't have to be able to diagnose your child, but you know your child, right? And so you know when your child's becoming more isolated. You know when your child seems to be worried more or they can't sleep or they're not eating well or they're starting to really importantly withdraw from friends and family members. Um, they're sullen. They're not motivated to do the things they used to want to do or used to find pleasurable. So those are the things. And, um, you know, I know, and I have young adult children and so do you. I check in. I don't, I'm like, you're always my baby. So I don't care how old you are. <laughs> so, you know, I check in. How you doing? And I was talking to a parent uh, a week ago about this. No, I call it your tell. No, your child's tells, right? I know I have one child who never talks about anything openly, but when he wants to talk, he comes and lays on the bed with me. And that's my cue that, oh, you know, I need to stop what I'm doing and let him talk. If I were to seek him out and say, how are you doing? He would go, fine. <laughs> you know? so, right, so sometimes right. you have to be willing to speak your child's love language in a way, to speak your child's language of communicating or disclosing really sensitive topics. I have other children, and my kids were little, we used to have pal days. I let them, they like hang out with me. And even though they're in their 20s and 30s, we still have pal moments. And so I think really trying to make sure you're available for your kids, acknowledging that what's going on is overwhelming. You know, I think sometimes in the Black community, we practice John Henryism, where you pull yourself by your bootstraps. And, and you know, we know research now tells us that John Henryism is, is, has a mixed bag. I mean, in some ways, it helps you to excel, particularly in academic settings. But on the other hand, years later, those same people are at risk for diabetes and hypertension. So that's stress can't be buried like that. It has to go somewhere and it needs to be expressed. And one of the ways we can express that is through communicating about it. And let's talk about this institutionally. Uh, And first about sort of academic institutions, college, university settings, before I want to move to the church. Uh, But one of the things that in the Steve Fonz research project, uh, and they offered uh, suggestions of ways to help uh, address uh, these what has been ignored, stress first, that's not simply brought on by the pandemic and this past year, but it's been there, as you've well articulated all along, but has been ignored uh, with uh, people of youth of color, students of color, and especially uh, Black students. And they suggested, uh, as you said, creating spaces in which uh, they can come together and talk about it uh, and express it. Can you speak to some of the ways in which institutions, particularly colleges and universities and seminaries, for that matter, can become proactive in responding to these issues before there is some kind of incident that draws our attention to the trauma that's always been there? So I think creating spaces for students is really important. But to be honest with you, I think sometimes when we do that, we inadvertently let universities off the hook. Mm-hmm. So what they can do is say, well, we have a Black Student Union, we have a Native American coalition, and now we, you know, we've done our job. They kind of, you know, dust the, uh, wipe the dust off their feet. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. one of the things I've been um, doing some workshops with um, graduate students around this is to help them to push the institution. Because if, I want you to think about this when, when, when if we want to change lynching. 
we could t- we could tell black people to run faster, or we could tell people to stop lynching. And so I'm saying systemically, what we need to do is teach people. You know what? You can't lynch people. Now I know that's an extreme example. When I give this in my church, people go, "Pastor Sherry, really?" But my point is, we're always asking the victim to change, mm. not pushing the system to change. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I think that universities should do is faculty, all faculty need to do some implicit bias training because it's very easy to say, well, I don't, I didn't know that my behavior, I didn't know, I didn't realize that I wasn't calling on Kelly when she's raising her hand. I didn't realize that I tend to praise the students from other communities and not praise Sherry when she makes a comment. I don't give, um, you know, I don't give the black kids or the brown kids in my class more encouragement when they're not quite there yet. Um, I have different, I don't, I have to acknowledge that I have different expectations of my students from communities of color than I do for the other students. I didn't realize that the students of color feel like guests, Mm -hmm. well-treated guests, but they don't feel like family at this university. Mm -hmm. And we say things like, this is my school. I'm like, what makes that your school? Mm -hmm. Is this our school? Mm -hmm. And if it's our school, then it should reflect part of not just who you are, but who I am. And it should be the place where where it's not just my responsibility to cope with your systemic racism, it's your responsibility to change it. No, I, again, uh, well said. And, you know, I also think, Sherry, that, you know, we are in these places and these institutions and they think, oh, well, you know, we've been through the implicit bias training once. We ain't got to do it again. We know what that is. And so that these things need to be institutionalized. Yes. Because... Yes. You can't change overnight in one uh, or in one afternoon that which is ingrained and become a part of who you are and a part of the air and the culture that you breathe and that has 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 shaped you. Uh, there needs to be paradigm shifts, and that takes lots of exposure, as you know, as a as a as a as a priest and as an academician. It takes lots of exposures, lots of trial and error, but also creating safe spaces for people to make mistakes. Because if people think they're going to be critiqued every time they do they misstep, then what people tend to do, what? They avoid being spanked, their hand being spanked, so people don't try anymore. So it's important to also um, have the academic freedom, so to speak, to make mistakes. I teach a class on multicultural psychology, and the first third of that class is on privilege. And it has to be a safe space for people to explore their privilege, right? right? And so we can't we can't say when people exhibit their their privilege, we can't say, "Oh, you horrible person, there's privilege." As opposed to saying, "I don't know." Now let's let's unpack what just happened here, mm-hmm. and let's think about different ways we can think about and consider this, and being willing to unpack it and not not ignore it because. It's like, oh my gosh, that shouldn't have happened. Uh, but I, I'm going to ignore it. Hopefully, no one else noticed it. So let's let's talk about you. As you said, as I'm a priest, you're uh, you're a pastor. And one thing that I know um, that you've been concerned about in your work for a long time, uh, and that often as well gets ignored, is the relationship between spiritual well-being and mental and emotional well-being. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I think, as you know, our church is founded on that principle, and this has been part of my life's work. So it's interesting to me that we, uh, I guess, trichotomize emotional, spiritual, and physical well-being, and you are the theologian, so you know that this comes out of philosophy. There's a whole history that, that we won't get into now. 
But that has actually carried over into even the way we understand mental health challenges and even do research. So we, this church is uniquely positioned to strategically address the emotional, spiritual, and physical well-being of people. And when we don't do it, I don't think we're, we're embodying all of who Christ is. I just don't. Uh, I know people will disagree with me on that, but I feel like, I, I, and it also, it, it, it negates to some extent how we understand the triune God, right? So the triune God is never separated from itself. It's always relational. What you taught me in my class, I still really love this word, perichoresis is the dance of God. When I think about the dance of God, I still want to cry. So I believe that we are created to emulate that. So if that's true, then we can't separate spirit from physical, from emotional, because all of that's part of who we are. We need to treat people holistically. So we can't really, so when the church says, well, you know, we're just here to deal with spirituality, but part of our spirituality is manifested in everyday life. And when there are systems of injustice that make everyday life unmanageable or intolerable, it is the church's role to do something about that. Because we are supposed to be the emissaries of God in this realm. And what I share with my church all the time is, you know, when it says, as in heaven, as in earth, as heaven and earth should be indistinguishable. And when it's not, that's how we know we're not doing it right. Because when it's indistinguishable, which it is right now, then something's wrong with this picture. Right. Well, I, I again, I uh, like the way you say that, but but you, we also know that... Uh, Particularly in the Black faith tradition, there's a long prevailing history of, uh, and I'm sure uh, beyond the Black faith tradition, but we can speak from the tradition that you and I uh, know most intimately of saying, well, you know, God will take care of it, faith will take care of it, and discouraging people from seeking uh, the mental health uh, support that they, in fact, need. And even, you know, we don't even have the kind of sometimes leadership uh, which is aware of this kind of relationship that you're talking about. So that leads me to ask, what should we be doing in seminaries? Uh, what should we be teaching uh, those who come through a fiscal divinity school at Union, come through Union and come through our seminaries, if indeed we are going to provide within our faith communities the kind of leadership that is able to support people uh, holistically? So I, that's a great question. As you know, when I was at Howard teaching an adjunct, I taught a course on um, the Black church and depression. So I really believe that at a minimum, we need to have it as part of our curriculum. You could, could it be a class? Yes, I, I prefer to infuse things in each class as opposed to it being a class, but um, because that to me shows that you're truly, it's important to you and you integrate it into all of, of your your pedagogy, but I, but I feel like um, seminary is a good place to start because we need to create new leaders who can have a conversation about mental health and mental well-being as part of their a part of their quote unquote Holy Ghost talk. I mean, I just think it should be part of what you talk about in my church. Um, and I'll admit this takes a while, but in my church we talk openly about uh, mental health challenges during BIPOC a mental health mental awareness month, which is this month in July. Each week we had someone from the congregation share their story about mental health. It could be your own personal problem. It could be parenting a child with mental health challenges. Some people talked about um, being parented by someone with mental health challenges. And those stories, those testimonies are part of the Black tradition. 
They are very impactful, in some ways more impactful than reading all this data and statistics which people can easily say, that's not me. Mm -hmm. I think that's one thing. I think just talking about mental health challenges from the pulpit is very powerful because it gives people permission to talk about it. And I think every church should have resources available. Don't wait for people to be in crisis. Does this require you to be able to diagnose people? No. Why is it important to lift it up from the pulpit? There are so many people in the Bible who have mental health challenges. (laughs) And so, and most of those people are helped. One famous example is Elijah in 1 Kings, are helped by people. So when people say it'll be in the by and by and you don't need to go to a therapist, that belies, betrays the text itself, where (laughs) there are people who get helped all the time by other people. And it's like the story of Elisha where the, the king comes and says, you know, I really, I can't see, I want to be helped. And they say, spit in some mud and put it on your eyes. And the mm-hmm. king is upset and like, no, I want you to come. And, and we do that as black folks sometimes. We're like, no, 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 the blessing, the help should look like this. And if it doesn't look like this, then we refuse and we deny it, right? As opposed to thinking more creatively and broader that God could choose to heal your depression, your anxiety in a different way, including in an anti-anxiety pill. You know, and, and to be open to the ways that God's blessings can be manifested and not to, to dictate to God how God should, how that blessing, what that blessing will look like. Uh, so, you, so you're preaching to us. Uh, yeah, I get upset about this because right, I, I like it. So you realize when you say that stuff, right, that all the people who were thinking about maybe I need a counselor are now not going to go. So we need to hold clergy responsible for the impact of what they say. And that began in seminaries, helping uh, clergy to understand and those preparing for uh, ministries to understand that this is a part of the ministry. It is at the heart of it if we really believe in wholeness. I want to get you out of here on uh, two last questions. uh, I promised to get you out of here on time, so I'm going to try to do that. One is, in all that you were just talking about, uh, in, in each instance, you talked about those who may disagree uh, with you. And we know uh, that in so many ways, we are fighting against the tide to get people to understand not only the realities of racial trauma, the necessity of mental health care. We're seeing that in the news now that some people are just dismissing it uh, as, as a weakness or whatever the case may be. Sherry. <laughs> How in the world do you lead effectively across the differences in this regard? So that's a great question. I'll just talk from my own experience. When I talk to people, and this is related but not related. So in our church, we're doing a curriculum on the Black church and sexuality. We've brought a lot from your, your work, your similar work in this area. And we are an open and affirming church. So when we started that series, it's about the seventh or eighth time we've done it now. I don't require you to change your mind. <laughs> what I'm asking you to do is listen. Mm. And I want you to listen what I call fully informed. <laughs> so what I want you to do is, and this, and let's bring it back to mental health. So you believe that when people get depressed, it's the spirit of, it's a demon, and you're going to pray that out. So I'm going to ask you, so that's one model. I'm not going to future model. But here are some other models. Mm-hmm. I'm also going to talk to you about in the text when they say the demon of depression was, let's say, was Saul. That is a metaphor that they use at that time because that's how they understood mental illness. Now we have other metaphors. 
your metaphor can be whatever you want it to be, but what it should be, because this is true to the Christian faith, is it has to be hopeful. Mm. So if your metaphor for demonology and depression works and it's hopeful at the end and people get help and get healed, cool. <laughs> However, if that's not the case, then it's not a faithful witness to the text. And so I don't ever ask anyone to change their mind. What I want you to do is be fully informed. So after you learn more about other models of mental health, um, and to be honest with you, we talk about the fact that the church is such an important, plays such an important role in mental well-being because it is it helps people stay socially connected. Yeah. Social connectedness is for prevention for almost any mental health thing you can think of, challenge you can think of. And that particularly, I see how churches who did this well in the in the pandemic are some of them are even thriving because they knew that being socially isolated in the context of all this stress was not good. And they planned for that or they responded quickly to that and said, what can we do to keep people socially connected? What can we do to make sure people know they matter? Mattering, particularly for your personal color. Where else would you matter, right? In the church, right? You matter in the church. And so we can't delegate that role to someone else because even as sophisticated as we all think we are and we live in our nice mansions now and many mansions and we have all these nice jobs and everything, at the end of the day, who loves you, right? And th- and you need to feel loved and adored. And like when when you're not there, I miss you. And, you know, even more urgently are for those people who not only don't live in many mansions, but have no place to lay their head. Right. And we haven't even, and that's a whole nother discussion, which we can't have today. But we have to think of what, if this is what impacts those who have a certain level of privilege, regardless of the color of their skin. What about those who lack the very privileges that would allow them simply to survive? And and those youth, because we know that youth of color are disproportionately homeless and in poverty, which means that the stressors are even great. So let me get you out on this. Okay. If you were to close your eyes, Dr. Sherry Davis-Molak, and given all that we have talked about and all the work that you do, what would a just society look like? I think that's a good question and a challenging question to answer. A just society is the society in which there cannot, the word disparity should not exist. Mm. Whether it's health, emotional well being, food, housing. And I, I talk about this a lot, as much as I, you know, it's my bread and butter to talk about well, mental well being. If we can't get people basic needs met, food, clothing, and shelter, then mental health kind of goes out the window because people are just trying to survive. No one should live anywhere in the world where they're just surviving. We were created to be thriving. We were created to be loved. We were created to be to feel substantiated. And when those conditions do not exi- exist, or let's say they exist for some people but not others, then that it is an unjust world. And that, again is not true to the witness of who God is. So there, there, cannot, there cannot be a space where we feel that God thinks injustice is okay. And mm-hmm. since that space can't exist, then we need to eradicate that. 
And we need to do every and all things that we can do to eradicate that because that space is not a space that honors who God is. Mm. A just society, a just world is a world that reflects, shall we say, the loving justice that is God. Dr. Sherry Davis Mullock, thank you so very much for sharing your wisdom with us in this time, for raising and helping us to understand these important conversations. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for the Steve Fund. And thank you all for joining us in this conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Just Conversations with Kelly Brown Douglas. These 30-minute conversations are featured on the EDS at Union Facebook page. Videos are also available on the Union YouTube page. The audio edition can be found wherever you stream podcasts. Please like, subscribe, and share.